pleasure to welcome up my friend Will Anderson and introduce him. Uh, many of you know Will, and some of you maybe have not gotten to know him yet. Will joined our staff team back in June, I think, May or June, and uh, his wife Emily and uh, their new daughter Callie. How old's Callie now? One tomorrow. Amazing. And uh, Will has been a church planning resident with us. Uh, and let me tell you what that means. In our, as I said earlier, desire to raise up and be able to send and release leaders, uh, part of that is having a residency to help develop new church planters so that they can plant churches into the future. And, but it's, I want you guys to know what a humble journey it is. If, if you are a resident, it means that you already have experience. You have gifts. You have served in other churches and other posts before coming here. But the guys that enter in the residency program, they come because they feel like there's things that they can still gain from Southlands or they want to be a part of the Southlands congregations. And so they come to learn. But often what that means is we tell them, all right, Get here, become a part of the community and culture. What's that mean? Well, why don't you set up some chairs and some canopies for Sunday morning, help make coffee, help us do whatever we need done, and just be a good team player, and we'll see how it goes from there. And uh, Will has done that amazingly, and it, but he is a gifted teacher. He loves God's word, and he's getting ready to go with the Santa Ana team and John Marshall. So the hope is that he would help get Santa Ana off the ground so he's not wasting time in planting churches. He's getting after it, but then hopes to plant out sometime in the future as well. And so please just give a warm applause and welcome uh, for Will. So good to have you lead us in the word this morning, man. Awesome. Thank you. I want to pray for him really quick. Father God, thank you so much for Will. Thank you for his heart, his love for you, Jesus, his love for your church. I pray that he preaches to this morning. Holy Spirit, would you rush upon him? Uh, would you give him strength and wisdom, and would your message come through him? Uh, thank you for all the work and study that he has done in preparation, and so I just pray that he would be free and full of joy as he brings us the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, JD. Can you guys hear me? All right, awesome. It's freezing this morning. I don't know what happened. I feel bad for you guys. You have to sit still this whole time. Um, yeah, well, JD kind of explained uh, why my wife Emily and I are here as residents. And I just want to say um, thank you for being uh, family to us. We have loved uh, being a part of this church for the last six or seven months. And uh, also to ask you a favor, it takes a while to get to know everybody. And so um, would you introduce yourself? If uh, I have not met you afterwards, we would love to have you over for coffee, um, even over to our house for a meal. Uh, so please come say hi, uh, introduce yourself. We're still getting to know people. It takes a while. So, um, but yeah, we have loved being here. Um, like I said, our daughter is turning one tomorrow and uh, she's super cute. Her name's Callie and she's right up there being held up. If you can see her, adorable. Um, and also, well done for being here this morning. You know, the Sunday after Christmas is traditionally the, the worst attended Sunday. So a uh, round of applause for yourself for being here. This is awesome. There's a lot of people here. I didn't know what to expect. I'm like, there could be 10, there could be 50, but this is, this is awesome. Um, so what I want to do is, uh, is take us back this morning. We just came through Christmas, and... Um, 
I want to take us back to Christmas Eve of 1914. And if you are into history at all, you will know uh, what era that is, which is what? World War I. Very good. Now, this Christmas Eve in 1914, something amazing happened. Some of you probably already know where I'm going with this. And uh, if not, then you'll be surprised and it'll be great. But here's what happened on Christmas Eve of 1914. And I'm going to read from an article because it's described so beautifully by uh, Christopher Klein, who's a historian and a writer. So here's the story. Charles Brewer never expected to be spending Christmas Eve nearly knee-deep in the mud of northern France. Stationed on the front lines, the 19-year-old British lieutenant shivered in a trench with his fellow soldiers. After Great Britain entered World War I in August 1914, many of them expected that they would make quick work of the enemy and be home in time for Christmas. But nearly five months and one million lives later, the Great War had no end in sight. Although disappointed to be far from home on Christmas Eve, Brewer at least took solace in the fact that the perpetual rain, which made moving through the trenches as much of a slog as the war itself, had finally abated on the moonlit night. All was jarringly quiet on the Western Front when a British sentry suddenly spied a glistening light on the German parapet less than 100 yards away. Warned that it might be a trap, Brewer slowly raised his head over the soaked sandbags, protecting his position, and through the maze of barbed wire saw a sparkling Christmas tree. As the lieutenant gazed down the line of German trenches, a whole string of small conifers glimmered like beads on a necklace. Brewer then noticed the rising of a faint sound that he had never before heard on the battlefield, a Christmas carol. My friend Jorg, who's here, I think this morning, you'll appreciate this next part. The German words to steal a knocked were not familiar, but the tune, Silent Night, certainly was. When the German soldiers finished singing, their foes broke out in cheers and used to returning fire, the British now replied in song with the English version of the carol. When dawn broke on Christmas morning, something even more remarkable happened. In sporadic pockets along the 500-mile western front, unarmed German and allied soldiers tentatively emerged from the trenches and crossed no man's land, the killing fields between the trenches littered with frozen corpses, eviscerated trees, and deep craters to wish each other a Merry Christmas. The soldiers exchanged makeshift gifts like cigarettes, chocolates, sausages, German soldiers even rolled barrels of beer they had seized from a nearby brewery across no man's land to the British trenches where they raised toast to one another's health. And I love this part. And they united in agreement that French beer was rotten stuff. <laughs> in some cases, the strip of death between the trenches even came alive with pickup soccer games as soldiers navigated around the shell craters and barbed wire. And I love this last line. Corporal John Ferguson wrote of the encounter, here we were laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. That is an amazing story. What is it that can take men who were slaughtering each other, put down their weapons and play soccer and drink beer beside one another? Whatever that is, I've seen that same thing here at our church. In a year of 
um, division in our nation and in the world. As a resident here, I've, I've sat in on our elder meetings, and if, if you have no context for what those are like, let me tell you, our elders have stood together through this year. When many churches have split apart, it's been painful, it's been horrible, Southland's elders have stood side by side. And in a word, what I'd call this is unity. It's unity. Now, when I say unity, um, some people think of holding hands of sort of this warm, uh, fuzzy, hallmark feeling. Others think of closed doors where leaders of nations are, are creating treaties and alliances with one another. Um, and all of that can, can be part of it. But the problem is none of that unity seems to stick. In a generation or two, alliances fade. The, the warm fuzzy unity that we feel for people goes away when they've offended us or, or somehow let us down. Um, think about your own family right now. We just came through the holidays. Think about your friendships. Think about your relationships here at Southlands. How's unity going these days for you? How unified do things feel in your life with the people that you know? In five days, we are going to enter 2021, a brand new year. And I can't think of anything else more important for the church and for our world than the idea of, of unity. And so this morning, um, we're going to talk about what it means to be unified. Tucked away in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 133, if you want to go there on your phone or in your Bible, or just look at the handout. But tucked away is this little psalm. It's just three short verses and it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of unity ever written. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 133. While you're getting there, let me just give you a, a quick background on the psalm and tell you what, what type of psalm it is. There are different types of psalms. And so there's this group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. You guys heard of this? These were songs that, that Hebrew pilgrims would actually sing together while they were headed to Jerusalem for festivals. So picture it, you have throngs of pilgrims all walking along the same path to the same destination to the same, for the same purpose. And they would travel together, not separately, um, all the better to protect themselves from robbers who would sort of lie in wait along these, these routes. Uh, to pick off vulnerable people and, and to take advantage of, of them. And it's just more fun to, to caravan it anyways, to travel in packs. And so this Psalm, Psalm 133, is one of the songs that they would sing while they were on the road. So let's read it together. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is God's word. So Christine, uh, let me know that 133 is called 133 because of the Psalm. And... Um, 133, if you're not familiar, is when all of our, our different Southlands congregations come together. And so it's, that gathering is named after uh, this psalm, which is beautiful. As with most things in life, um, 
on our quest for unity, we're going to begin with God. And so I, I find it helpful to, to define things even before we get started. So I'm gonna give you a quick definition of unity. Unity is when mutual love for God creates mutual love for each other. When mutual love for God creates mutual love for each other. So we're gonna put the warm fuzzy view of unity aside, the political view aside, even some of the other religious views aside, and it's when mutual love for God creates mutual love for each other. And what we see in the Psalm, which is our first point, is that God is the ultimate bringer of unity. Unity comes from him alone. Without God, there would not be unity. And it's, it's just that simple. And that takes some humility, doesn't it? Because some of you have very strong opinions and very strong gifts. And you're like, whoa, I, I can actually bring people together. I can rally people. I can build bridges. I can solve problems. And maybe you can, and those things are good that, that God will use them. But if God is not actually at the center of your unity, it's going to fade. Now, why do I say that? Look back at verse one. It says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. When God's people live in unity. This is not a Psalm about general world peace. This is not a Psalm about nations having alliances with one another. This is a Psalm about God's people, about the church, about you and me. And here's the, the interesting thing. This Psalm was written by David, who we all know King David. He was one of the greatest rulers of ancient Israel. He reigned for 40 years and he had an amazing ability to, to unify the nation. And even so, his own family turned against him. His son, Absalom, tried to seize the throne, tried to kill his own father. David navigated, made it through that, handed the kingdom over to his son, Solomon. Unity in the nation lasted only one more generation because after Solomon, Israel was split into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And despite his power as a warrior, his words as a poet, his leadership as a king, David could not hold it together. And so what we actually see right off the bat is that this vision of unity that David's describing, he couldn't even live out in his own kingdom. And a better king was needed, a, a king that unlike David could reach into the human heart and transform it. Because church, um, treaties don't change human hearts. Policies don't change human hearts. Laws cannot change a human heart. Causes and nonprofits cannot change a human heart. Only the savior of the world, King Jesus himself can reach in and transform a human heart. And so I wanna show you something really, really awesome in here. And please bear with me. I know uh, it's gonna get a little nerdy for a second, but None of us are probably experts in Middle Eastern geography. I'm certainly not, but I wanna point something out in verse three that's going to show us why God is the ultimate bringer of unity and how he does it. So in verse three, you have two mountains mentioned, Mount Hermon and Mount Zion. Now Mount Hermon, okay, I promise this, this will really bring uh, verse three to life. So, so stick it out with me here. Mount Hermon at the time was, was the highest mountain in Israel, over 9,000 feet tall, way up in the north. So that's Mount Hermon, capped with snow, beautiful, majestic. If you go 120 miles south, 
you get to Zion, uh, which is another word for Jerusalem, and it's built on a hill. It's called Mount Zion. It's only 2,300 feet tall. Now, what this Psalm 133 is saying is that the dew from the highest mountain in Israel is falling 120 miles away on the lowest mountain in Israel, which is physically impossible. It's miraculous. It's something that only God could do. And that is the point. The point is that this unity is so amazing. There is no human explanation for it. And it's because God is the ultimate bringer of unity in a world where unity feels impossible. God says, no, actually I can make it possible. And so Jesus came. He came like dew falling on the mountains of our disunity and he refreshes us and he makes it possible. Jesus came from the heights. He came from the heavenly Mount Hermon. He came to Zion, to Jerusalem, where he willingly gave his life on a cross to bring unity between God and us so that anyone who puts their faith in the name of Jesus, confessing their sins, turning from their sins can be saved and have unity with God. And we just celebrated the incarnation at Christmas, the moment when God stepped into our world and brought unity. And if you have never placed your faith in King Jesus, then what better time than in the new year than to say to him, Lord, I want to trust you. I want to experience unity with you that will overflow into unity with other people. And I will give you a moment um, as I pray to put your faith in Jesus if you have not in this new year. So God is the ultimate bringer of unity. The next thing we see in the Psalm is that God gives unity as a precious gift. And I love the Bible because it describes things creatively and with pictures and with images. Sometimes it just says things straight up, but a lot of the times there are pictures and illustrations and the Psalms are, are full of these sort of poetic words and ideas. And so um, look at the structure of the Psalm. You have verse one, which is just a, a summary of the main point, which is unity with God's people. And then you have verse two and three, and there's these two images about how good and how pleasant God's unity really is. It's, it's almost like God is telling us, not only do, do I create unity, but I want you to see it and savor it. And parents, if uh, you experienced this Christmas, a gift maybe that you were giving your kids that you were so excited for them to, to receive. And is there anything more amazing than sitting beside them, watching the wrapping paper fly like shrapnel and to just see their delight at what's inside? Well, that's what this Psalm is doing. It's an invitation to see how good God's unity is. And so there are two images used. The first is the image of oil being poured out. And the second is the image of dew falling on mountains. And so let's look at this first one, oil. Look at verse two. The unity of God's people is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robes. Now I know when we think of unity, we immediately think of beard oil. Maybe JD, you're the only one. But other than him, uh, what, what is this talking about? Um, there's three things I wanna point out about oil 
and how it's like the unity that God brings. It's holy, it's fragrant, and it's overwhelming. So first it's holy. Where is the oil being poured? It's being poured on Aaron's head. Who's Aaron? Aaron is the first high priest Israel ever had. And in Exodus 29, there are instructions that whenever there's a priest, that this sacred holy oil should be poured out on their head as a way to set them apart, to say, this is God's um, chosen servant who I'm going to use powerfully. And David wants us to see that unity is like that. Through God's spirit, he pours it out on his people and says, these are my special holy people that I'm going to use for my glory. How beautiful is that? It's also fragrant. Oil is fragrant. In Exodus 30, just a chapter later, there's instructions on how they were to make this holy anointing oil. And among other things, it was made from myrrh and cinnamon. The word fragrant is used several times in describing it. And this was an oil that when you poured it on the high priest's head, the smell would just fill the room. And David wants us to see that our unity as God's people should smell that good. That when people watch us as his, as his followers, when people are around the church, they should smell that same sweetness. They should be drawn in. They should be asking themselves, what is up with these people? Why is everyone else so divided, so hostile, yet these people love each other and sacrifice for each other? What is going on with that? The oil and the preciousness of God's unity is fragrant. And the last thing is that it's overflowing. And so notice how much oil there is. It's not a few conservative drops, okay? For you essential oil people, just forget the little dropper, okay? This is being poured out. It is going from his head, dripping down his beard onto the collars of his robe. He is drenched. It is cascading down. There is so much oil as he's anointed. And the idea is that God is a good giver of gifts and that his, there's more of his unity than we would ever expect or deserve. Is that true? Is it? Do we not hear more often that the church is divided and broken and quarreling? Is there really so much unity in the church that it's just filling every crevice, that it's fragrant? And I'm gonna address that in a second. But first, I would just invite you to, to look around you for a second. To look at the people around you. Notice a couple things. Notice how different they are. They don't come most likely from your same background. We all have different levels of education. We have different hobbies. We have different vocations. We have different interests. We're at differing levels of maturity. And yet here we are together Unified, where else in the world do we have this? Someone might say, well, in sports stadiums, you have that, right? You have all these different people from different backgrounds and, and different contexts coming together because what unifies them is love for the team, a longing for victory, a, a way to be associated for, you know, with the same thing. But let me ask you this, how many sports fans that do not know Jesus deliver hot meals to one another when their spouses have cancer? How many sports fans train their, each other's children in the truths of scripture? 
How many sports fans are in each other's living rooms every week in life groups, carrying each other's burdens, staying in touch with each other, knowing what's going on? How many fellow sports fans pray with each other? How many fellow sports fans give at least 10% of their income away sacrificially? Friends, this unity is precious that we have, and you cannot find it anywhere else, anywhere on earth other than in the church because God is the ultimate bringer of unity and because he gives us his good gifts. I wanna read a, a quick passage from Ephesians 2. This passage was written basically to make the point that people who are supposed to hate each other can actually live in unity when both love God. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13, listen to these words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. There's nowhere else we can get this kind of unity. There's nowhere else that it exists where hostility it's melted into camaraderie. Now hold on to that thought because uh, we're moving into our last point here and it's gonna get more practical. And so the last thought is that God brings unity through grace and grit. Grace and grit. Look back at verse one. It says how good and pleasant it is when brothers or God's people live in unity. Good and pleasant, those are two different words. So good refers to what ought to be, what should be. Pleasant is what we want to be. So good refers to our duty and pleasant refers to our desire or our delight. And if we're honest, what we know we should do and what we want to do don't always align, right? And there are a few areas that will test our obedience more than maintaining unity in the church. There are a few places that will push our buttons or stretch us more than in this area. And so let's just think for a second, how did God bring unity? How did he do it? He did it through grace and through grit. First, grace. God sent his son, Jesus, something we never deserved. I mean, it's unthinkable that God's own son would become like the creatures he created, yet he did it. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he became a servant taking the form of a man. That's grace. But it also took incredible grit because Jesus coming to earth led him to a cross where he experienced immense pain physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually in agony on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is grit of the most, at the most profound level. So in order to enact grace, the son had to persevere and painfully submit to his father's will 
And guess what? If we want unity in our church, so will we. It takes grace and it takes grit. So I'm gonna unpack some ideas on, on how this works. And this is so far from exhaustive. I, I, if I took my whole sermon to just give application points, we wouldn't even touch half of the situations that will present themselves. And that's not the point. This is really just to get us started. And so even now, would you invite God's spirit to speak to you? Would you invite him to sift your heart and to show you where those areas are where you are sowing disunity in our church? Ask him to show you where you can sow more unity in the church. Ask him how you can be more filled with his grace that will flow like oil through your life out to other people. Ask him uh, to help something stand out to you. So just to, I have four simple thoughts of how God brings unity through grace and grit. And to quickly set this up, uh, the, the most common way that the Bible talks about our relationships with each other in the church is family terms. And so each of these is gonna be put in family terms. The first one, how do we live in unity? Spend time with your father. Spend time with your father. A lot of churches lack unity because people don't spend time with the God who loves them and created them. They don't feast on grace. They are starving themselves from it. And so whatever stillness you can find in your life, God has given you his word and his spirit and his community, but spend time with your father, drink in his grace, whether that's going on walks, I'm not gonna unpack all, all the ways that it looks. How do you spend time with your father? You know, you know what it looks like. You know what it takes. You might only have a, a few minutes in this stage of life a day. I don't know what it looks like, but spend time with him. All right, we're gonna talk about some grit. Are you guys up for that? Okay, it <laughs> sounded real excited. Um, the last three points, the last three points are more on, on the grit side. So the first one is commit to your family. Some of us have only dipped our toes in the community of the church. Church is a good thing you would acknowledge, but not something to sacrifice for, certainly not something to place above the other priorities and preferences of your life. And some of us have bought the lie of individualism, the lie that it's just you and God, and that that's what matters the most. And the whole Bible and the whole New Testament within the Bible know nothing of that world that to put your faith in Jesus immediately makes you part of the family of God. You can live as if that's not true, but it's still true. So what would it look like in this new year to really commit to your church family, your brothers and sisters? What will it look like for you not just to attend and leave, but to actually serve? Maybe you're already serving, but God would have you do something new, something additional, something different. Ask God to show you what does it look like to commit to your family. So grace and grit, spend time with your father, commit to your family. Number three, uh, these last two are all about expectations. It's amazing how much expectations matter, how much they really do matter. So this next one is expect conflict with your siblings. Expect conflict with your siblings. You know, some people talk um, like they're so surprised there's 
fighting in the church. No, redeemed people still squabble. They absolutely do. Show me any family that doesn't have fighting and bickering and people putting their foot in their mouth and having to apologize and offending and letting down. We are going to bump into each other all the time. The question is not if, it's what are you doing about it when it happens? Are you being an agent of reconciliation? Are you willing to say, I'm sorry when you are the one who have, has hurt or disappointed or even betrayed? Invite God into that conflict, into those spaces. Last one, expect growth in your siblings and your brothers and sisters. Expect growth. We are all works in progress. Thank God. He is not through with any of us. And it can be so tempting when there's someone that we think is immature or annoying or foolish to just kind of write them off and say, well, of course they did that. So-and-so always does that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not at all surprised. And God says, what are you saying? They are mine. I redeem them and I love them. And all the, the issues that you see, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You have no idea what my blueprints for their life are. You have no idea the masterpiece that I am slowly chiseling them into day by day by day. Do not write them off. So there's this expectation if we're going to have unity and it takes grit, it's hard, but to look at people, even those who have hurt us and let us down and say, I know that God has plans for them and they are good plans. I believe that I, there are new things to discover about that person. I don't have them pigeonholed. I don't know everything about them. I'm expecting that God is going to do new glorious things in their life. And I can't wait to see what those things are. That takes some serious grit to do that. But God would invite us into that. One, because he showed us through his own life what it looks like, but also he has given us these gifts through his spirit, through his word and said, now go and do likewise. And then at the end of the day, it's just gonna take some grit sometimes where we push through and where we agree that we're gonna be unified as God's people. So as we uh, step into 2021, God wants to bring unity on this congregation like dew falling from the, onto the mountains, like oil being poured on the head of us, his priests. And the question to us is, will we allow him to? Will we model it? Will we live it? Let's pray and ask him to do that right now. Heavenly Father, how good and pleasant is the unity you pour out on your people. God, we long for that unity. We long for others to look through the window at Southland's church and to see the face of Jesus. Though there are likely some here that have never truly trusted in you. Lord, they've been around religious things, Christian-y things, Bible-y things, but they have never said, Jesus, 
I am a sinner before you. I need your life. I need your salvation. If that is you today, and if that is you here, I invite you to call upon the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Oh, how good and pleasant it is to be in his presence, to be forgiven by his grace. He invites you, not with the stern look of a disappointed father, but with the open arms of a loving father. Put your trust in him. Believe on him. Lord, for those of us that know you and, and call you our God, our King, our Savior, Lord, would you reach in where no other human hand can reach? Or would you lay hold of our hearts and would you further shape them into hearts of unity, not discord, into hearts of softness, not hardness, into hearts that delight to put preferences aside, not take hold of things that we feel are ours, ours by right. Jesus, thank you for the incarnation. Lord, for the way that you brought unity. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your powerful name.